All right. Hello and uh, welcome to the Hacking State podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Cody Moser. Cody is a good friend of mine as well as a PhD student in the Department of Cognitive and Information Sciences at UC Merced. Uh, and his work primarily focuses on evolution of human behavior and um, human institutions. Cody, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be back on. I think last time we chatted, we were uh, in the middle of lockdowns. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you were on my last show actually quite a, a few times. You're one of the sort of guests that came back more than once. And we've always had really great conversations together. So I'm excited to see what we're going to get into this time and also to see, you know, that you seem to have really gotten your foothold in the work that you're doing over at um, at Merced. So I wanted to just take the opportunity today to talk a little bit more in depth about some of the research you've been working on and your areas of interest. So let's just start in giving people a better idea about what it is you you study and sort of your theoretical approach to the study of cultural evolution and institutions. Yeah, sure. So for those who aren't familiar with kind of my background, uh, I used to be an anthropologist, specifically a uh, primatologist. So I would go into the field and follow around primates, write down what they were doing, do experimental manipulations with uh, lemurs and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun, but I realized kind of halfway through a PhD program that I was more interested in some broad scale patterns about human social systems that I was interested, say, in the origins of uh, complex societies, uh, how we got all the amazing things that we have now, like the computer that we're talking over, the internet, which uh, funnels all the data. And I was exposed to some formal methods and modeling uh, that seemed to be developing in this field of cultural evolution. Specifically, a lot of people were using different kinds of network methods and agent-based models to look at real-world systems, but also to try and model what they think is happening in these systems. So it was kind of a way for me in looking at these methods, a way of kind of being a theorist, but doing so without just like, you know, sitting in your armchair and just thinking things up. Now you can actually have kind of a testing ground for your theories in the form of uh, formal models. Uh these models often take the form of, uh, say, mathematical models or agent-based models, which I primarily use. Um, and basically, all an agent-based model is, is you're creating a little world that has a number of uh, logical preconditions. Uh, having agents interact in that world for, with a certain set of rules and then just seeing what ends up happening. And so it's a way to take all the different parts of a theory, break it down, and see what that actually produces in, say, a group of uh, simulated people. So that, <clears throat> sorry, so that's kind of what I work on now. Uh, my primary research questions are um, have to do a lot with uh, organizations and institutions. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to say I do organizational life history, meaning how do they arise? Uh, how do they become optimized in their environments? And then ultimately, how do they collapse? Um, because, you know, very few things exist forever. And so we're kind of at a point where we're producing formal models of these to try and understand uh, how, you know, uh, groups of people uh, come together and and, and do things. Hmm. So, so in a way, you see the lifespan of an organization as 
analogous um, or maybe even identical to that of uh, individuals, individual organisms. And there is a sort of um, similar, I guess, evolutionary ecology to the way that organizations function. Would that be fair to say? You almost could say that, yeah. Um, you know, obviously there's competition between organizations in their niches. Um, these things tend to persist way past uh, any one individual human's lifespan. Um, and and a lot of these uh, institutions create rules that ensure their survival. Um, certain norms arise that make the institution strong against external influence or uh, allow it to propagate further and further. And these different institutional arrangements are essentially walking around on fitness landscapes, um, mm -hmm. just like, you know, any other human is doing. Um, but of course, there are some differences in terms of this kind of teleological uh, uh, view, you know, what what is an organization doing? Well, it's presumably doing what its founders try and guide it towards doing. Um, but the thing, presumably, yeah. But the thing is, is that uh, a lot of these things have mission creep. Uh, and they stay around for a lot longer than necessarily they need to. Um, and so there's a sense in which these things are are, are exhibiting their own almost uh, uh, agency in the world. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. Lots of people have talked before about, obviously, organizations that sort of um, live sort of beyond their initial um, mission or impetus for being and then sort of become corrupt in some kind of way or very mm -hmm. perverse. And I guess one of the ways of thinking about that is that there are kind of uh, natural limits on... Um, the lifespan of let's say a human body that's 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 literally become corrupt or is like break in the process of breaking down and there are ways in which organizations maybe even humans too can sort of um prolong the process of mm -hmm. deterioration um by sort of making all of these uh bad trades it's it's interesting to think about the analogy like how far we could stretch it like there's a way in which these organizations sort of <laughs> accumulate um mutational load and various kinds mm -hmm. of dead and other things like that um and there's also a way in which i mean people don't like to talk about this much these days because um uh, a lot of what we call the life sciences now is being brand rebranded as kind of um uh life extension in many mm, ways yeah but that field also has this strange dynamic of wanting to it seems sometimes prolong life at any cost mm -hmm. and there's something um very perverse about that it, at, at a certain level um and so that's just something that comes to mind when i think about an institution that outlives its core mission yeah uh, maybe humans have the same problem to some extent if we can find the means to do so maybe there is just a um kind of Maybe life is better if we just accept, <laughs> you know, that, that we will expire at some point. I'm not sure. That's a more philosophical question that uh, maybe we could think about. Um, but so I wanted to get a little bit back into kind of the methodologies that you're using. So you mentioned agent based modeling, and mm -hmm. this sort of seems to be the primarily the primary method for um, at least 
running a lot of these simulations that you're doing to kind of test these different hypotheses that you might have. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the ways in which you're doing this agent-based modeling and some of the, um, uh, I guess, some of the um, conclusions that you can draw from doing this kind of work mm -hmm. because to an extent, it is a... Um, you know, it's it's necessary in order to have something that's um, amenable to scientific study that you simplify um, the models, right? And so there's always this uh, question that, like, if you have this very um, highly simplified model of the world, uh, to what extent is it actually mapping onto reality? So could you talk us through, like, just a, a basic example of how one of your models, um, or maybe one of the models that you've worked on recently, mm -hmm. uh, can give us useful insights about how organisms or how systems evolve. Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, a good model to talk about uh, might not be mine, but might actually be um, uh, Thomas Schelling's. Uh, are, are you familiar with the Schelling model? Uh, no, please. Tell so, us. so the, the the Shelley model is kind of one of the most classical in terms of agent-based models. So, uh, Schelling, when he was on a plane, uh, came up with the model because he had something like a roll of quarters and a roll of pennies in his pocket. And so, using a napkin and these quarters and pennies, he just said, "Oh, you know what? I think this is how this works," and kind of played the model out on the airplane before he actually ever wrote it up. Um, and so, basically, what this model shows is this. Um, all of the agents, let's assume that there's two groups of agents. Uh, uh, group one um, has a preference for group one. Group two has a preference for being by group two. Um, and this preference is just ever so slight. So it's like, I, I like being around, say, my blue members, like, you know, 5% more than I like being around the red members, which means that if I'm around the red members, I'm not totally dissatisfied, uh, but I would rather be around the blue members. Um, and so he wrote the model so that at each time step, each iteration in the model, um, these agents, which were placed on a grid, uh, could move closer towards the individuals that they preferred to be by. And so time step one rolls, uh, the blue guys say, OK, well, um, just to kind of satisfy myself a little bit more, I'm going to move closer to a blue. And a red will say, OK, just to satisfy myself a little bit more, I'm going to move closer to a red. And what he found is that with this kind of extreme micro bias, it was a very slight bias. What you end up with is like large scale segregation in terms of the spatial arrangements of these groups. Uh, you essentially end up with these, you know, rivers of red, these rivers of blue. Um, they're hardly interacting with one another. And he said it's called the Schelling segregation model because for him, it's a model of segregation. Now, of mm. course, if you think about what causes segregation, uh, it's way more complex than that. There's like house prices. There's the ability to actually move. Um, ostensibly, there's some kind of racism that's explicit. But the point is, is uh, what he was trying to show is that these micro biases can produce macro behavior. So it was not necessarily a model of the real world. But what it was is a model of something that happens in the real world and how it can produce some dynamic on an exaggerated level if that's all that's acting. Mm. And so that's the way that I see a lot of these simplified models is that I'm showing you a very coarse grained picture of what might be happening in real life. Um, so for example, um, 
I have a paper that uh, I'll be presenting next week in London um, on these uh, core periphery dynamics in innovation. Yes. And, yeah. So, so this is this is a really fun model. Uh, my my buddy uh, Jesse Millsman um, did most the work in coding it up, uh, but it, but it's based on another model of innovation that I had done previously called the potions task. And mm. in this potions task, oh, there's a bug. Um, sorry. And in this potions task. Uh, Basically, everyone starts with a set of six ingredients. They have six potions. And what they can do is they can work with someone that they're connected to in their network to combine ingredients. Mm. Sometimes these combinations yield new inventions. Sometimes they don't. But when they get a new invention, they then add that to their inventory, and they can use that to combine even more ingredients. Okay, now, there's a that, bias. Hold yeah. on. That, that, that recombination... Mm -hmm. um, counts as like a sort of innovation score, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so so there's a score. Um, each time they get a new item, it has a higher score. And mm -hmm. in this case, the agents are biased towards using this higher score. It's this kind of, uh, uh, you know, novelty bias. I get something new and I tend to use it. And it's based off of the experiment uh, where people really did do this. Um, as they discovered new things, they forgot that they could go back and uh, use some of their older things and find different combinations. So what ends up happening is that in a group where people are all talking to each other, they tend to get stuck. Um, there's two trajectories of potions, uh, one in which, you know, if you make an initial set of uh, ingredient combinations at the beginning, you'll tend to discover or randomly you'll discover the other one. But because you don't go back, and combine that original set, you don't find the other trajectory. And so in a group of people where everyone is talking to each other, uh, they tend to get stuck on one trajectory or the other. Uh, and the reason for that is consensus. Uh, consensus is pretty bad for models of innovation. You need, you need some outlier people uh, who are able to kind of buck the trend and not agree with everyone. Uh, because if you're all doing the same thing, then you can't really find novelty. Uh, and so, so in the course of doing a prior model, I found these uh, nodes in some of the networks who were, you know, kind of on the periphery. They weren't doing much. I called them loser nodes because they weren't really interacting with anyone. Uh, their payoffs were horrible. Uh, like if you're kind of watching the simulation, you're just thinking the whole network would be better off without them and the average would rise without them. But what you find is that when the network gets stuck, when it's at this point, when it doesn't know what else to do, these loser nodes are very important um, because they have a memory of the system's prior states. They're not thinking with everyone else. Mm. So what we did was we produced these kind of core periphery networks, uh, ones in which you have this tightly clustered core, which has a lot of consensus, um, combined with this periphery that's not really connected to itself. And it's certainly not really that connected to the core. And what happens is this... Uh, Periphery is able to explore new options. It can send the information to the core, which can then exploit these options, do whatever it needs to with them. And in mm. the meantime, the information doesn't travel back outwards to the periphery. And so these are just perpetual loser nodes. They're people who are, you know, sitting in their ivory tower, not doing anything with the information. But then when the information goes to the core, it gets used immediately. And so this kind of model, you know, represents a lot of what we see in economics, uh, in, in the economics of innovation specifically, where uh, innovators tend to come from the outside. You know, someone who has a different eye on something uh, suddenly becomes, you know, the most important guy in the world. So these uh, would be like, uh, like Nassim Taleb's tinkerers. 
Right, exactly. And and there's there's even some people who have explicitly tried to capture this dynamic. Um, this is what Lockheed's uh, Skunk Works is. It's a group that's basically separated from the rest of Lockheed. The innovations come from uh, Skunk Works back in, uh, but they don't go back out. Uh, Steve Jobs did this with the Mac division in Apple. Uh, he realized that they weren't being very innovative. They weren't getting much done. And so basically separated their offices physically and cut them off from the rest of Apple. Apple uh, so that they could go work on something from the outside and then they could pull that information back into Apple's core, but without exposing them to what the other project teams were doing. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to have you stop there so that we can do a rough, um, I mean, so that we can outline sort of like where we're at. And there's a few directions that I imagine we can take this discussion. Um, I really wanted to go in depth on this core periphery dynamic because I think it's a very important piece of work that you're doing. It's also very relevant to um, this uh, conference that you'll be attending. So, so you have these. Um, you have basically a a network that's broadly split into two groups, uh, mm-hmm. which is the core and this periphery, right? And on the core, you have a, a tightly connected group of nodes that are all talking to each other, and then on this periphery, you have a very uh, disparate, loosely connected. Um, group of nodes who may or may not be talking to each other and some of whom are tightly or less tightly connected back to the core. That's the basic model. And what you're saying is going on is that whenever the core is basically not learning enough new stuff, it's not innovating fast enough, it has to absorb new innovations from the nodes that are out exploring different kinds of territory in the periphery. And that because the periphery is only loosely is in some cases only loosely connected to the core, um, the peripheral nodes have a different kind of uh, memory of the mm-hmm. system as a whole, right? It yeah. Maybe even like a spotty memory that's like missing some things, and that this is useful in innovation space because there's this explore versus exploit dynamic, and you're saying that the existing system was leaning too far in the exploit category. And it was basically just trying to, you know, iterate on previous gains in knowledge instead of actually trying to find new stuff. And this periphery is actually essential for finding new stuff, correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. Yeah. And and any other elaborations? I have a few more, one one more thing to bring up and then... Yeah, sure. But but you can elaborate on that if if I was incorrect or just anything else. No, 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 no. That was totally right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And my understanding of the paper that you recently published, um, which let me find the paper. It's called Decentralized Core Periphery Structure and Social Networks Accelerates Cultural Innovation in Agent-Based Modeling. This is published with yourself and um, and your partner. Um, well, not, not partner, but <laughs> co-author, <laughs> Jesse Millsman. Um, and what you did was you identified basically three broad models um, for how these net like how these actual networks could be let's say shaped correct so one is the affinity model where mm-hmm. there's heavy intra block connectivity and by this uh you meant that the core nodes are all very highly connected to one another and the affinity nodes are all very highly connected to one another mm-hmm. um there's also the centralized model um which fits a lot of sort of how many organizations are structured currently, which is that there's dense core connectivity, 
and also dense connectivity of the core periphery. Uh, I'm sorry, of the core to the periphery nodes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the final model, which is the decentralized one, which is the one we're going to talk about here, um, which is dense uh, core connectivity. So all three of these have dense core connectivity, um, but there's sparse connectivity um, on the periphery and elsewhere. Is that yep. right? So those are the three general shapes in which this um, in which this uh, network or pair of networks can take. And what was interesting about this research that you did was that you discovered that one of these shapes um, tends to be better at innovating than the other two. So let's get into that. Yeah, yeah. So um, out of all those, the best one is the decentralized core periphery. And this is just a system where the periphery is uh, not only isolated from themselves, but also isolated from the core. Um, that's not to say that the affinity groups are bad. So the affinity group is what you might call in, say, um, a lot of network science, a more modular system. Um, so these systems kind of are not really attached to each other. They're off doing their own things. But these modular systems are also very good. Um, so in a previous paper, uh, or actually it's a preprint, but in, in previous work, uh, we created a graph called the connected caveman graph. And the connected caveman graph is one where you have these uh, units that are fully connected to each other. What you do is you sever one of the ties within the units, and then you add them to one of the other units. Um, and so what that is, you get this like string of clicks um, that are all kind of talking to each other. And this one does extraordinarily well at the task. And the reason is, is because it's able to subdivide the parts of the task um, uh, that it's required of. In some sense, I wonder if what the decentralized core periphery is doing is, is something similar, where it's subdividing the tasks, but in such a way that um, each task might be like one node. Um, but 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 that system does quite well. And 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 earlier you mentioned the explore exploit trade-off. Um, so this is something that a lot of people talk about in organizational theory and just cognitive science of behavior. Um, in, in, in terms of individual decision-making. And what this trade-off kind of represents is, okay, uh, I have to do something. I have to make some decision and then I have to act on it. I have two alternatives. One, I can start acting now, given the information that I have, or two, uh, I could explore a little bit and look around and gather more information and then act. Um, and it's a tricky thing for a lot of real world institutions trying to balance this dynamic. I, I call it, you know, trying to have your cake and eat it too. How, how is it that you're able to explore and exploit at the same time? You mm. see a lot of times in real world organizations, we'll talk about the startup world real quick, um, sure. where founders will start flat, meaning that mm. everyone in the organization kind of talks to each other. Uh, there are no formal rules. Um, everyone's on the same level. There's no hierarchy. And what this allows, it allows the organization to do a lot of search. Um, it gives each individual member a lot of um, lateral movement so that they can figure out what their role is going to be, what it needs to be. It allows the organization to respond quickly uh, to novel problems that come up in its environment. But the problem is, is that once a startup finds exactly the problem that it's gonna be working on, uh, it often needs to start exploiting. And what it does is it switches 
to a hierarchical system. And this is actually a very dangerous state for organizations to be in, because all of a sudden you had all these people that were friends, they were buddies and colleagues, and suddenly now they're bosses and employees. Um, and you see this happen all the time, these kind of flat to hierarchical transitions just ending in failure. Um, and also vice versa. It's happened the other way where uh, organizations started hierarchical, tried to go flat, and then it lost a bunch of people. But so what a this kind of decentralized core periphery model is, is it's allowing this group of agents to have their cake and eat it too. Um, because the agents on the external, on the periphery, aren't receiving information from the core, but it's just going uh, straight to the core, uh, they're able to continue exploring while the core is able to take any new information and immediately use it as quickly as possible. Mm, okay. So, and and this is related to kind of the efficiency of information within the network, um, yeah. the way in which information propagates between the nodes. Um mm -hmm. And so what you're kind of saying is that to get optimal levels of uh, innovation, you actually need to have some inefficiency in terms of the information flow built into the network. Is that right? That's exactly right. So uh, uh, my advisor and I and a few other people in the lab um, just published a paper. Um, it just got accepted called uh, Transient Diversity is a Principle for Collective Problem Solving. And basically okay, what, what, what do you found... mean by that? Yeah, sure. So transient diversity... Um, comes from the philosophy of science. And basically what the statement means is it's a population's ability to entertain multiple theories. And so mm -hmm. let's say that there is a theory about how, I don't know, uh, clouds form tornadoes, right? Um, if there's really only one theory and everyone's working on that theory, there's not that much transient diversity. But if there are multiple theories and people are working on these different theories, there's a lot more transient diversity. Um, and so we say that this is a general principle for problem solving uh, because across a wide range of models, not just this you know, bespoke potions task, but across uh, more popular things in complex systems, such as uh, the NK landscape, uh, which is basically this um, task made by uh, Stuart Kaufman in 1989, uh, where you can make rugged adapted landscapes uh, computationally uh, uh, tractable. Um, the Hong Page model, all these different models basically uh, came to the same conclusion, which is that less efficient information sharing is actually better for collective problem solving. And you can you can increase you can increase this transient diversity in several ways. Uh, you can make the network sparser. You can literally slow down the rate of interactions between people. Um, you can introduce some outgroup bias. So uh, this idea that I'm not going to believe something coming from the red team and the blue team's not going to believe uh, what's coming from me actually might have some benefits in an epistemic system. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically, all these different principles lead to improvements in collective problem solving. And it all boils down to the network or the group of people being less efficient at their jobs. Wow. And so that's a little bit of an in, unintuitive finding, I would think, for most people. Um, one of the other things that I noticed uh, in reviewing some of the your work on this and some of the other work that you referenced is that uh, there are also trade-offs between these different uh, models in terms of the sim uh, simplicity and complexity of the problem that you're trying mm -hmm. to solve. So the more hierarchical 
structures actually do work very well yep. for solving very simple problems. But the more complex a problem is, the more you need sort of these, um, this, these, I guess what you would term as like parallel exp exploration or different kinds of inefficiency or uh, even yeah. redundancy um, in order to um, sort of work on um, these complex problems. And it, it just, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on like the relationship between um, uh, these like structures and uh complex problems is it is it really just an uh do you think it really just comes down to like information flow and questions of like epistemology or is there something going on um obviously if if it's turning up in these these agent based models it's not simply a matter of human psychology mm -hmm. it's not some sort of quirk of us as beings and so it seems to be more fundamental than that um and that it really is about these structures and these structures have an effect on um, getting through complex pro getting through complex problems. Um, mm -hmm. What are the implications that you see more broadly for large organizations? Um, you, you said that this is uh, useful to think about in terms of collective problem solving. Um, it seems that there would be implications not only in academia, uh, obviously areas directly concerned with epistemology, but also areas such as governance. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned startups as well. All of these different kinds of large collective um, human activities that we have would benefit potentially from knowing about uh, how these different models interact depending on what kind of problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, this is a really good point. Um, so the question is kind of, you know, is this real? What 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 is it capturing beyond these bespoke interactions of the agents, and and what does it apply to? And it, this is a great question because it gets kind of into the heart of what I've been working on lately. Uh, recently, I was part of a large paper uh, titled um, "All Intelligence is Collective Intelligence," and basically the perspective that we took is that any intelligence system, meaning a system that has to you know, make decisions in a changing environment um, is being driven by the same dynamics. Uh, um, we might call these complex adaptive systems. Um, you could also call them generative adaptive systems, which is the approach I take because it implies that they're also generating novelty um, when they're solving problems. Um, and this, this, these principles keep popping up pretty much everywhere. It seems that in any learning system or any adaptive system, uh, you're going to come across some of these same things. So for example, um, Douglas Hofstadter in talking about just general computation, he talks about this parallel terrorist search, which is again, this ability for the population to do some parallel processing of its problems. And in that case, he's talking about, you know, optimizing AI for, for mm -hmm. thinking about things. Um, we can think about it in terms of groups of people and, and how we could structure our institutions. Um, you can think about it in biological populations. So uh, something that I've discovered recently is that while all these models seem different from each other, uh, they really all descend from pretty much the same model, which is uh, Wright's uh, shifting balance theory, 
uh, where he came up with this idea of adaptive landscapes having peaks and valleys. Uh, you know, uh, the agents kind of scramble to get to the peak. And then the question is, well, how, how do they get to an even higher peak? And so right. you know, he had all these questions about what is the process of adaptation? Uh, you see mm. it in gradient descent. Uh, gradient yep. descent is obviously one of the most used in machine learning now. But but it's but, the but same thing. It's the same thing. <laughs> and it literally is the same thing, because when gradient descent was finally formalized by Haskell Curry in 1944, uh, mm. the keynote speaker at the American Mathematical Society the year before was Sewell Wright, um, where he was talking about agents ascending and descending gradients um, mm. in an adaptive process. And so if you just think, okay, what does a system which is trying to learn or trying to survive in the face of uncertainty or novel information have to do? Uh, well, it has to have some memory. And so this is pretty much your ability to exploit uh, but it also has to be looking out for what's coming on the horizon, and that's your ability to explore. Um, and so you just see this across a range of systems, um, including in human brains. So uh, mm. we see in in the human brain, there's been a lot of uh, people concentrating on modular systems as arising for solving tasks. So I might have a module for dealing with uh, taking in visual information out of the world. I might have a module for motivating the hunger system, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah. lately, something people have been concentrating on is the presence of these core periphery systems in mm -hmm. learning. Um, so for example, there's a question of why do we have the hippocampus when the brain can also learn without it? Well, it seems that the hippocampus allows you to learn things much faster, while as there's slower learning happening throughout the whole system. Uh, we see uh, during periods of skill learning, uh, a sort of core peripheriness being captured uh, that seems to improve as you learn a skill, um, which that's basically like, let's say uh, you're learning to play the piano, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you develop what's called a core competency, um, which is just your ability to play the piano in general. Uh, but as you want to learn new skills, you don't want to have to go back and like, you know, relearn the certain ways that you're learning the piano. You don't want to have to delete information uh, in order to move forward into more complex tasks. So what you do is you kind of have two systems. You have one that knows what it's doing, and then you have one that's a little bit more experimental. Um, so the brain the brain is a microcosm, in a way, of this larger dynamic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people forget that the brain itself is just a bunch of, is a network of nodes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's pruning and all kinds of other stuff going on where it's just getting better at solving whatever complex task. I mean, as far as we know, the brain is the most general problem solver that we have. Yeah. So at least for now. <laughs> um, so that's like important to just keep in mind is it, it's um, it's pretty crazy when you think about uh, all the levels at which these principles are operating mm -hmm. um, from a single like from within a single human mind. Um, all the way up to these massive, uh, large-scale, um, million-person organizations. Yeah, uh, the principles are basically the same. Um, I don't know if there's like something going on too with slime molds that maybe <laughs> is very similar, but I wouldn't be surprised that at even lower levels of um, network complexity, similar principles are operating. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, uh, with that being said. Um, 
I forget where we were. So you were mentioning that the human brain uh, also operates in these ways. And we were talking about uh, how different systems could incorporate this knowledge. Do you think that on an individual level, it's also um, like that there's something, I mean, there, there's something to be gained just from an individual understanding this dynamic, um, mm. not only in terms of their contribution, let's say, to an existing organization um, or an existing field of study that they might be involved with, but also to their own um, explore and exploit dynamics in terms yeah. of assessing their own, you know, general problems. Cause you know, life is, uh, life is complicated, maybe even complex. And so, uh, people have to be thinking about these. And this is mm -hmm. one of the things that, um, I mean, I've at least since learning about the exploit explore dynamic, um, many years ago, it's a pattern that I just see showing up over and over and over again, uh, in my life and in others. Um, people always have questions, you know, should I go study this thing? Should I go to this job? Should I move to this city, etc.? And all these questions in some ways yeah. um, break down into just understanding, okay, what it is that you're, what it is are you trying to do right now? Are you trying to take advantage of something that you already have set up that's good and that's working? Or are you, are you stuck somewhere? Um, and are you, are, are you ready to delve down into the valley, so to speak? and mm -hmm. go to try to find something new. Mm -hmm. Do you find it's useful for thinking about just direct personal problems? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, because what all these adaptive systems are trying to do is they're trying to hedge against uncertainty. Um, and that's, you know, if the world was so certain, uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have so many problems, right? Like we wouldn't have mm -hmm. anxieties. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily have, you know, uh, be frozen by our own decision-making processes. Uh, uh, you know, we would just do exactly whatever had the highest payoff. Um, but unfortunately, uncertainty rules the world and we can't really predict the future so well. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think about it uh, with myself. I mean, I, I tend to think very much on 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 the group level. So, you know, where where is it that maybe I sit in terms of my group's dynamic and uh, you know, how is it, how is it that I can encourage this group to be more, uh, you know, like, like the ideal systems maybe captured in the models. Um, of course, there's so many human complexities that maybe that'll be a damning thing for me in the future. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I saw that you made a, um, a collaboration network for your own department. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want, I was just curious when I saw that. Um, were you, uh, did that play at all into your, I, I don't know how you ended up at UC Merced, but did that play at all into your decision to study, um, at that department or under your particular advisor? Um, you're working with Paul Smaldino, I believe mm -hmm. right yep. now. Um, so, um, I mean, feel free to talk about that if you'd like, but I was just curious if if you're really thinking about this in terms of group dynamics, then you'd want to be putting yourself uh, simultaneously in a network that's set up properly mm -hmm. for achieving the kind of innovation that you want to achieve. Assuming you want to achieve innovation. I mean, maybe you just want to exploit and you're going to go work in iBanking yeah. or something. But <laughs> like, depending on what your objective is, uh, you want to like put yourself in a network that is sh 
uh, amenable in terms of its contours to mm -hmm. the kind of thing that you're uh, going to be focusing on. Uh, the other thing to consider is that maybe you also want to be putting yourself into a position where you as an individual um, are going to be, let's say, optimally exploited for whatever kind of behavior that you yourself yeah. are geared towards, right? So there's an assumption that some individuals would be better at at doing one or one, more specialized at one variant of, uh, at, sorry, at one level of gradient of the task, whether it's exploit or explore. And so if you're a very high exploring individual, maybe you're very high on openness or something like that, uh, maybe you'd want to think about positioning yourself into a place where you get to do a lot of that. Whereas if you're a person who's more geared towards just, um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to make it sound rote, but doing the same thing over and over again and getting very good at that thing, um, then you'd want to be putting yourself into a, a, a position where you have the opportunity to do that. And so there are many levels in which you can think about um, your your own positioning, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, taking advantage of these dynamics. Yeah, totally. That was, um, yeah. So UC Merced, I guess I'll just kind of give you a background on the place. It's actually in the United States, like the first research university founded in the 21st century. It opened in like 2006 was when its doors first opened. And uh, essentially something weird has happened here, which is because it's such a new university, it has no path dependency in terms of its structuring. Um, so, you know, all these people came in and they're like, all right, I'm going to make a cognitive science department uh, but it's going to be weird and it's going to be like embodied cognition and complex systems and all this other weird stuff that no one else is working on. We can now afford to kind of coax these people who are on the periphery and just, you know, make them a thing here. The same thing happened with our political science group, like that place, poli sci here is like super into, you know, like psychological political science. And we we have like a management school that's um, also like all complex systems. And so it's this kind of weird place where they were specifically able to coax uh, very innovative groups, um, mm. uh, you know, people kind of on, on the fringes of what you might call you know, traditional fields that, that are quite entrenched and, and build something new with them. And so, th so that is like specifically what kind of attracted me here was looking into the departments and the interaction rates. So I was like, look, it looks like people are just working on whatever they want to and kind of openly collaborating <laughs> with each other. And yeah, so, I'd like so to you do that. <laughs> it, it's nice, man. And, and so you mentioned like my departmental network. Um, it's on my website, culturologies.co. Um, in terms of, cause I've done a lot of networks now and collective problem solving tests. I still haven't found one that beats that one for its size. Um, just something about <clears throat> kind of the core peripheriness that we have in our network. Um, you know, it tends to blow other ones out of the water. I think I, I had a preprint where I plotted, uh, the performance of all these different hypothetical networks. And then I plotted where, you know, UC Merced cognitive science was, and it was, it was total outlier in terms of its performance. Um, so yeah, maybe this place is just uh, specifically a very innovative place, but like you said, um, you know, it really depends on kind of what your psychological profile is. Like I tend to be very, uh, explore minded. Um, you know, I forget, uh, uh, 
gosh, I forget what Razib called me once, but I think he called me like a dilettante or something. Cause you know, I, mm-hmm. I tend to, I, I tend to read things very much on a surface level and be like, okay, well, I'm going to work on this for a little bit and then go work on something else. Um, and a lot of traditional academic departments that really won't survive. Um, so for example, I was uh, in an anthropology department before and I was just absolutely miserable because the expectation was that you had to work on a specific system. That was all you're going to do. You know, you, you, you'd specialize on a specific primate and work on that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, in fact, I think uh, this idea that you just keep repeating the same thing over and over is really good for science, uh, but it just wasn't for me. Yeah, I believe your your advisor calls himself a promiscuous scientist. Pragma- yeah. Paradigmatically promiscuous scientist. That's the term. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so seeing seeing kind of, you know, the way that he was able to interact with the world of science, I was like, okay, I'll go work with this guy because it seems like uh, that's a good kind of character to model. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, well, so that's that's really amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you, you know, got your footing um, in at uh, at UC Merced. I'm really excited for the work that you're doing. Um, it's uh it, it yeah it, it it's incredible stuff i mean really i i can't overstate um how how important i think this stuff is and I, i'm just like sort of wondering for you personally like what what's driving the um you know the the interest in all of these things because i think if someone was to take a passing look at your biography and, you know, there's a lot of information if, if you mm-hmm. guys want to learn more about uh, Cody and his background on culturologies.co. Um, that's his personal site. You can go there and get all the links to everything that he's been up to. Um, I think a lot of people might be unclear what to make of it. But to me, and, and I just have a an intuition about this. Obviously, we've known each other for um, several mm-hmm. years now, and we've spent a lot of time talking. But I get the sense that um all of the stuff that you're doing does have some sort of coherence to it and i'm not saying that it's some sort of like master master plan that you've got maybe (laughs) there is um but uh i get the sense that what you're doing is motivated by something much larger in terms of your vision for what you can bring to the world and i was just curious if there was anything you wanted to articulate about the work that you're doing and how it kind of all fits together. Yeah, sure. So, you know, back when I was a primatologist, um, I was very much interested in cultural anthropology and just social theory in general. Um, My background in cultural evolution is not, you know, the modern conception of the field, which starts in like the 1970s with uh, uh, Luca Cavalli-Sforza and Marcus Feldman and Boyd and Richardson, but a much older one um, coming from the uh, neo-evolutionist anthropologist Leslie White in the 1940s, uh, who talked a great deal about cultural complexity and how things get the way they are. Uh, Primarily what I'm interested in is just adaptation as a principle and how we can kind of use that to guide uh, ideal arrangements in the real world. When I was uh, outside of primatology, I went to D.C. and I worked in Washington, D.C. for like a year or two. And, uh, you know, during all these internships, I was working on questions like welfare and poverty and ideal transportation networks, et cetera, et cetera. 
But kind of the most interesting period was when I had a uh, Charles Koch Institute um, internship. And so when you're in this kind of CKI, they call it like the Koch Internship Program, um, they really try to brainwash you into uh, uh, what is Charles Koch's mindset. And it didn't really take much for me to realize, like, I was thinking about some of the same problems they were. Uh, you know, the guy's a billionaire. Um, and what are billionaires kind of obsessed with these days, or probably since time beginning? It's this concept of immortality. Mm. But this is a guy who realized early on he wasn't going to achieve biological immortality. So he started looking into the immortality of institutions. You know, this is like Sam Oberge's whole thing. Like, how do I get an immortal society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's really mm. this big drive to try and find this. And I'm kind of motivated by that question as well, uh, but also the realization that uh, maybe there just like, isn't like an ideal arrangement for society. And maybe, maybe that kind of death is a good thing. Um, so, so if I had, if I had some kind of big plan, you know, I tend to see myself working on the level of ideas and their adaptation. So how can I find like a sustainable philosophical system? How can we protect that kind of philosophical system? What are some boundaries that we have to put in place or some structural arrangements that we have to deal with uh, to identify when our philosophy or our epistemology is healthy? When does it look unhealthy? Um, how do we know? Um, a big question is, uh, you know, how do you recognize that you're just sitting at a local optima and that things could be better? Um, mm. I think that trying to develop some kind of social toolkit for finding that out, is going to be a big challenge for the 21st century. But, you know, we have a set of tools that I think mean that at some point it's going to be within our reach. Uh, but the answers might not be that satisfying. It might be something like uh, the work of Friedrich Hayek, uh, where he basically said, you know, you can design the rules of a soccer game, uh, but you really better not try and figure out how the game's going to be played. Uh, it may be as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, um, you know, it, on this part about the mortality of institutions, I I think this is something that was not really lost. I, I apologize for the um, digression, but mm -hmm. it wasn't really lost on our founding fathers either. Uh, yeah. It, when they were setting up the United States, uh, they thought very hard about this question of how do you make a, uh, let's just say a regime mm -hmm. that uh, will last as long as possible. And their conclusion was sort of that you need some kind of meta system, uh, yep. some not a singular institution, but a, a system of institutions that can has a, a mechanism for self-renewal. Yep. Um, and that's sort of how they, you know, decided upon a constitutional republic um, at the time, the sort of best conception of a system that they had available and, and actually a, rel a very new one. Um, and yeah, that's just something, I mean, it, it may just be a vanity project, to be honest, um, to try to think that you can make something that lasts forever. And uh, I don't even think, I, I think even if you go up one more layer of abstraction to a meta system, it, you run into the same problem, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of uh, a turtles all the way down kind of phenomenon <laughs> where, you know, you're just whatever thing you design is just not going to live forever. Right. And maybe yeah. you can maybe you can create something that has a little bit of self-renewal, but eventually um, things decay, things get corrupted. Uh, entropy works its way through the system 
and uh and everything dies so yeah i mean this is uh, this is kind of at the core of 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 my research is that it seems like the real critical problem is path dependency um mm -hmm. just you know once the system builds up some level of historicity um and it's simply you know repeating what it knows and it's not able to adapt in a new environment that's when it begins to die and there, there's been like a lot of you know, uh, large studies on organizations and kind of what permits their longevity. And ironically, the number one factor seems to be uh, CEO death. Uh, not literal death, but the CEO exit. But, yeah, but watch having out, some Elon. kind of, yeah, some, yeah, right. <laughs> having some kind of purposeful, you know, renewal rate uh, mm. uh, does a lot for an organization. This is actually how the Koch organization is structured. Um, they have like these like seven guiding principles and like every seven years or so they look at these principles and say, should they be adjusted or changed, um, right. which is, you know, kind of creepy. And I, I I think about this, like with the United States that, you know, we, we had this amazing toolkit, which I think is natural law. Natural law was like the coolest thing we ever had. Um, but over time, you know, the legal system ended up corrupting it. And so, you know, you go to Europe and you see how well things, well, kind of you see how things are working maybe you can say whether or not it's better but but one of the things that you realize is that like Europe had the ability to like continually renew itself after every single war um you know something wouldn't work it would break down okay time for a new country all the time mm -hmm. people say oh you know the united states it's so it's so new no compared to pretty much every other country in the world the united states is like substantially older um, and we don't think about the amount of bloat that it's just built up over that time. You know, if there's a simple way just to get a clean slate and then start, you know, renewing again, it would be amazing. You know, what what would a system like that look like? I think about like uh, um, Heinlein, his book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. He kind of came up with a governance system where uh, you had one legislative body that creates laws and then one that decides whether to keep them over time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes about uh, just the way that like the Habsburg Empire worked, where you had kind of, uh, you know, an emperor on top, this kind of uh, noble class in the middle, and then, you know, this this kind of uh, uh, non-landowning class on the bottom, uh, but where the emperor was closer to this bottom class than it was to the middle class. And so there was this kind of natural system of checks and balances that didn't have to be explicitly written into the law that allowed it to kind of, you know, continue into the future. Yeah, uh, there, there's also a problem, um, and this is uh, particularly acute in the United States at the moment, um, which is that, you know, there's a there's a problem of demography, which is that if you don't mm -hmm. have good demographic turnover, yeah. then you also aren't getting any uh, any proper renewal of these systems. And I mm -hmm. think uh, that's a tough issue that we're facing right now. We just have a lot of old people and um bless their hearts but <laughs> they're occupying positions of uh of authority and um not really allowing the system to renew itself yeah. properly and the longer people continue to extend their lifespans and have working lives um the more we run into this problem of like we're gonna have to evolve evolve some sort of cultural norms around honestly getting these people out of yeah. um, of existing systems because i i don't know how, how else to solve it um or mandatory retirement ages i mean you could do something like that but um 
Yeah, that's that's like a a big problem that I think we uh, we we have to solve if we actually want the U.S. to uh, be able to innovate going forward. Yeah, the stickiness I mean, is real bad. Um, the the only places in the economy where there are a lot of innovation has basically been, yeah, the places that have very little path dependency. Right? Yeah. P- tech, information technology. Why? Because it's new. It, yeah. It's literally that. It's just, it's just because it's new. It has less crap <laughs> built up over time. I mean, people blame regulations. I don't know to what extent. Um, but regulations itself is also just a, another form of path dependency. So yeah. I think path dependency is the more general problem. And um, that's something to, uh, to that we should all be thinking about in terms of solving our own uh, innovation issues. So it's actually quite good that we managed to make it over to the United States because I wanted to also mention um, within this conversation, a recent piece you wrote about um, internet polarization. Mm, and, yeah, sure. Uh, Section 230. You wrote this. This is not a paper. You wrote this on your blog. Um, basically, looking at the problem of Section 230, I actually have a piece on Section 230 that I wrote in undergrad a few years ago um, that was related to 2016 election interference allegations and mm-hmm. whether the free speech on the internet was going to get regulated as a result. Um, but basically you were assessing in this uh, piece, the issue of polarization and internet polarization uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. And what I found curious about it was that you say you came to a very similar conclusion to myself and a number of other people that I've spoken to about this. So for those listening, uh, my previous podcast, the Agora politics show, which Cody was actually the first guest on and then later came on um, again uh, a second time, was originally designed to, or at least intended, to deal with the problem of political polarization. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I stopped the show um, and why we're starting this new one uh, is that I realized at a certain point that political polarization in the way that I was thinking about it originally was not the actual problem that I thought it was. And I feel like you in this piece uh, touched on some of the reasons why. And so um, I wanted to just make sure to bring that up so that uh, we could talk a little bit about how you're conceptualizing polarization and the way that the Internet is polarizing people um, and maybe how it could be polarizing people differently. Yeah. So. Please, if you could just um, talk a little bit about what your um, thoughts were from when you wrote this piece. Yeah, so I wrote that piece, and then I I also had a magazine article in the Hungarian conservative titled "The Ties That Bind Us" that kind of get into some of these themes as well. Um, something I've been getting into lately is uh, the concept of uh, digital governance, digital health. You know how how should the internet be structured uh, in a way to make our epistemic systems uh, stronger? So in the piece that you're referring to, um, I was trying to think about this concept of uh, weak ties as driving polarization. And essentially what this means is that let's say you're scrolling Facebook, uh, you don't get polarized by the discussions that you're having uh, or necessarily by people who agree with you. What you're polarized by, it seems, 
you know, this research is kind of contested, but what it seems that what you're polarized by is exposure to the other side. And so what's happening is basically, you know, you're seeing something uh, from, I don't know, someone you went to college with, someone whose political opinion in no real world sense should you actually care about. Uh, but you're seeing this pop up on Facebook all the time. And it's kind of grossing you out. It's icking you out. Mm-hmm. And 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 this is this is kind of a natural consequence of the way that a lot of our social networks are structured, and it's a problem as far as I can tell that's getting worse. Um, one of the things that keeps a lot of social media relevant is the idea of common information. Uh, the idea that when I log onto Twitter, people are all talking about the same thing. Um, that we all saw yesterday's Super Bowl ads or we all saw the same movie, um, something that kind of builds this togetherness or this communitas uh, to you know, bring people together. I mean, Zuckerberg literally says his whole point of, of creating Facebook was to bring people together. I think when Facebook was founded, the path length between you and the furthest person from you in the network, which means how many people do you have to go through to get to that furthest person was eight. Uh, now it's like less than three. So the furthest mm-hmm. person in the world from you on Facebook is less than three people away, which is which is completely staggering to think about. Um, and so I kind of had the mindset that the way that we've been thinking about polarization might be wrong and that the best way of getting rid of polarization is ironically by increasing it. And so this idea of not just hyperpolarization, but hyper hyperpolarization. Uh, create more echo chambers, make sure that people are exposed to less novel information, um, you know, lock people up into these groups, um, let them, you know, debate into their nonsense, you know, screaming into the void with one another and see what happens. And the idea here is that what you'll get is that the polarization will happen more naturally in these groups. Um, But instead of being polarized over just a few things, people are going to come to be polarized about a large number of things, that the space of disagreements, the number of items over which we disagree will increase. So there was this paper by uh, Flocka and Macy in 2011, where they created this kind of connected caveman network that I was telling you about where the clicks are all connected. But what they did was they made some long range ties. So, you know, across this ring of networks, uh, they would connect, you know, this diagonal and this diagonal. So that really far away groups were then connected. Well, this this increased polarization uh, for obvious reasons, you know, is that it kind of entrenched people in the beliefs of their group being exposed to someone who is, you know, literally all the way across in topic space from them. Um, Mm. But what they found is that when you increase the number of topics by which these individuals disagreed on, uh, the polarization, as they were defining it, decreased. Now, why was that? So my advisor and his student, uh, Matt Turner, uh, did a reanalysis of that, looking at, uh, you know, what this kind of item increase effect was. And what it was, was it was actually like a hyper increase in polarization that instead of people, you know, disagreeing on this kind of, you know, linear space is that you had this like 
n-dimensional hypercube and people were mm-hmm. so polarized they were running into the corners you know so so instead yeah. of someone being like oh i'm polarized because uh i'm white and you're black it's like no i'm polarized because uh you know i'm italian and specifically yeah, yeah. i'm from genoa you know <laughs> it, it reminds me there's this um so i'm obviously involved in a lot of like weird twitter subcultures and i yeah, sample yeah. quite widely uh i like to think um and it reminds me there's like this um there's this disagreement within like certain like very niche subcultures on Twitter about whether you should be drinking large or small coffees. Okay. And like there's like there's like a large <laughs> coffee tribe. It's it's less uh less alive now, the debate. But for a while, there was like a large coffee tribe and like a small coffee tribe. Yeah. And they were like vehemently, you know, counter signaling each other. Like you should be drinking <laughs> small coffees or you should be. And it's just it's it's a. It's an example of like this hyper hyper polarization that you're yeah. talking about, where there's intense disagreement on something that's me- seemingly trivial, yeah. um, a matter of like preference or identification, but is actually in some ways a lot healthier than yep. this uh, very bimodal thing where it's like red red versus blue or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess I I just want to um make sure that like people are getting a good idea of like graphically what this kind of like intensive polarization Mm -hmm. that you're talking about looks like and how it's sort of qualitatively different than the way that we would normally use the term polarization. Um, One of the uh, conclusions that I came to, I mean, the n-dimensional hypercube is like, yeah, a good way of saying it. But um, one of the conclusions that I came to was that... um, it wasn't about bringing people closer to the center and that actually what I wanted mm-hmm. was more innovate, more innovation space in, yeah. Um, yeah. in politics and culture. And the way to get that was to, uh, yeah, a- as you say in the piece, you have like this, um, this, uh, <laughs> this very, <laughs> this ironic <laughs> Mao quote about letting a thousand flowers. Bloom. Yeah. Yeah. That has some dark connotations, but, Basically, like you want proliferation of many different like fringe ideologies, basically, was the conclusion that I came to. And so when people are like asking me, like, why are you, you know, talking to these people or why are you spending time on Twitter, like interacting with this weird subculture? It's like I I think that we're we're actually fundamentally like very stuck and bringing more people into the center, bringing more people into um, the status quo is not how we're going to get unstuck. We need actually like a prolifer- proliferation of all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. And then though that weird stuff, like it's just like the um, it's just like the core periphery dynamic. Some of that weird stuff, it's going to make its back- way back into the core and yep. it's going to get absorbed and then we can actually get real change. Yeah. Um, so that was a very long winded say way of uh, of putting it. But that's sort of how I'm envisioning this. And, and that's sort of why I wanted to make sure that we we, we touched on that point. Um, I have some quotes from this piece that I pulled out, and the link for this is going to be in the show notes. Um, you said, what the Internet has done is exposed us to more information, but fewer ideas. Yeah. And I think that's fundamentally the issue, right? You're getting the same memes, the same triggering stuff on your timeline over and over and over again. And what you're not getting, unless you really make an effort to do so, is like actually genuinely new stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have a friend who's always like talking about how um, 
there's no, you know, what, what he craves is new content. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's that issue, you know? Um, so for an individual browsing online, I think also the whole, uh, length of our discussion so far could be useful for thinking about how you kind of sample yeah. from the network. Right. And that maybe for you yourself, let's just use your Twitter feed as a good example. Maybe you want to be setting up yourself as this kind of intermediary between the core and the periphery where you're following a certain number of like, let's say core affiliated mm -hmm. um, persons or uh, institutions. And you're also making an effort to stay attached to elements on the periphery. Yeah. This is sort of why I never bias myself um, in favor of, uh, of large accounts versus small accounts. If anything, right. I'm more biased yeah. with small accounts because it's like, look, where am I going to find new interesting stuff? Probably not from a 50,000 follower account, right? Even yeah. though that account has lots of social proof and there might be other reasons I want to follow them. Um, I want to be sampling from the outskirts of the periphery because that's where I'm going to find the interesting stuff that's happening. Exactly. Um, and so that's sort of how I think about um, uh, just curating my own feed. The other thing I do is that I tend to be very biased against institutions. So I do follow some institutions, but like every once in a while I go through my follows and I prune. Uh, I basically do a giant follow purge so that I can bring my follow count down. <laughs> and one of the things that I like do almost automatically when I do that is like any institution, if yeah. I don't have like a very strong attachment, like, you know, you're talking about weak and um, strong ties. But on a very strong attachment to that institution, automatically it's an unfollow. Like I'm much yeah. more interested in following individuals and institutions because I feel like there's a very similar dynamic in terms of an institution is generally constrained in a way that an individual is not. So even an individual that's tightly tied into the core, the core has some novelty to them just by virtue of them being an individual. Yeah. Um, that an institution is not really allowed. It doesn't have the same... Um, uh, I guess degrees of freedom, um, that uh, most most people do. It's very hard to keep an institution that um, that limber. Yeah. Um. Okay. So th those are just sort of my thoughts on how you might sample some of this stuff. Um. I guess I want to just uh transition into sort of like what you're continuing to work on, what you're excited mm -hmm. about, and maybe there's if there's something upcoming that we should know about. Um. So what are you working on right now? And what are you excited about working on in the near future? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on some pretty fun things right now. Um, so, you know, I've been doing a lot in this collective problem solving space. Um, I'm starting to move a little bit more into uh, just specific facets of these network structures, specifically like the core periphery stuff. Um, you know, how, 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 how do core periphery dynamics, you know, influence things like polarization or, or, or take away from that. Um, with another professor in this department, uh, Tyler Margettis, I'm doing some things on philosophical networks um, through time. So looking at uh, using a, a model from physics called the easing model uh, to look at the health of philosophical debates, um, say, let's say in like, I don't know, third century Byzantium and, you know, and Schopenhauer's Germany, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, you know, there are networks of these things that people have built. Um, now we can kind of sit down and look and, and figure out what was happening that maybe made some of these periods, if they were philosophically productive, good, or if they were philosophically non-productive, bad. Um, I have a question for you about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'm guessing that these networks are primarily uh, put together due to like citations or yeah. references. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, you, you could do some like delineation of like schools of thought, basically, yeah. by looking at the connectedness of these networks. I'm actually very interested in this. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you could send me some stuff on that actually afterwards. Yeah, uh, totally. Sure. I want to look at that because there's something I'm working on right now that's uh, that could potentially be uh, putting together curricula based on something like this. Um, okay. So sorry, sorry about that. Continue. No, cool. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And then, uh, recently I was, uh, with my advisor, um, this is kind of the conclusion of, a of, a, a grant that kind of funded me in the last year, uh, working on this concept of information architectures. So actually formally entering this discussion about say the structure of the internet or systems of propaganda or, or just information dispersal, um, in societies, I mean, it's it's this is kind of the big thing that keeps me up now is is how is it that we should be restructuring the Internet? Um, how is it that we need to be thinking more seriously about our recommendation algorithms and and what is it that they're doing? You know, why 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 is it that Reddit killed the comic book guy? Why why do Marvel movies all cater to normies now? You know, those those are very serious questions. I, I really do think mm -hmm. they are. Um, and, and, and they might actually have very, very simple answers which is just that we've sped up, you know, our information consumption rate and our exposure to as many people as possible um, that now, you know, we, we don't get as much novelty. Yeah. So, so, so I, I wanted to um, touch on this, uh, just um, distill this point a little bit more clearly because yeah. it's something that I've thought about and I've tried writing about it, but I, I don't think I have a great grasp on how to express it properly. Um, basically like, what you're saying is that the internet has had like a counterintuitive homogenizing effect yeah. on certain aspects of culture, um, which you would not expect. You would think that, oh, you connect the world and then suddenly there's just an ex a Cambrian explosion of new ideas and yeah. new thought and new fashion and all this other stuff. And it turns out there's like um, maybe it's because of renormalization. Maybe it's because actually we're just all not that interesting <laughs> and we just converge on the same stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it is, but um, this problem of the Internet being a homogenizer, you're saying might do be due to the structure of the networks that we've set up itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's also it's also the reason why, you know, we we eat very important information now, like popcorn. I mean, we're you know, people are getting crushed in south korea and these you know parties or whatever happening in the streets and then like the next day we're talking about will smith you know slapping chris rock or whatever it, like, like 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 it's it's just preposterous to me the rate at which information has increased and this is definitely connected to this explore exploit trade-off that that our networks right now are totally geared for exploitation but not geared at all for exploration 
Um, you know, we, we, we have these great centralizers now that are that are acting as giant centrifuges, just sucking all the air out of the corners of the room um, so that nothing can proliferate there. And, and, and I'd like to see, you know, in the same sense, there's a lot of things that we see, like in the physical world that I think haven't yet manifest in the digital world. So this idea of intentional spaces um, is not something that we see yet, or like a seriousness of community that, you know, people form online. Um, and, and in terms of like, you know, policing its boundaries is not something that we, we really sense as much. I mean, we sense it when we see, you know, like the emergence of like right-wing hate groups or something like that, but, but the, you know, that, that, that's just seeing the internet as sort of a tool, uh, for a real world ecology rather than a very rich ecology of its own, um, that will produce, you know, very unique human dynamics, uh so 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 you know this is something i've gotten interested in recently is is you know to what extent have our governance systems not caught up with the fact that we are no longer simply just embodied agents but agents that are pretty much limitless uh through the means of the internet there's nothing stopping aside from you know some material constraints you know my grandchildren's children's children hearing me talk about this right now um, we, we haven't really figured out a way of dealing with that. And, and maybe we could say, oh, you know, there's books, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the way that we express agency and we allow agency to be a thing online is not only going to be as real as it is in the real world, but even more real. I, I was thinking about this recently, the fact that uh, to go and get a haircut in certain places, uh, you have to, you know, log in somewhere else and do it online and you can pay ahead, et cetera, et cetera. Showing that the real inconvenience to your life is not scheduling and getting a haircut. It's the physical act of getting your hair cut that we've already offloaded so much into our non, you know, corporeal spaces. Um, mm. We need to very seriously think about how we're going to take that seriously in the future, especially with the rise of, let's say, we accidentally start creating um, agents that purely exist in these spaces. You know, we have to have this set up beforehand with the realization that a lot of those dynamics are already being played out by us online right now. Hmm. And so I, I guess when I think about um, the lack of, it seems to me like there's a, there's an analogy between the physical world that you can draw with the internet and a kind of way in which the internet has not been able to replicate the same spatial yeah. representation that we have yep. in real yep. life. And I guess one, I guess, point contra to that would be that I do see this happening in very small ways, but mm -hmm. it does seem as if the core is antagonistic to these kinds of developments, right? So yeah. you have like issues like Twitter blocking certain links or not wanting people to go off the platform for various reasons. And really what you're saying is that like, there should be more spaces that are, um, I don't want to say parasitizing, but that are getting people offloaded from the core yeah. and out into, like you said, intentional spaces, uh, whether these are, you know, private chat rooms, uh, study groups, discord servers whatever whatever you want to do urbit i mean i don't care mm -hmm. um but like 
there is a way in which I see this happening, but it's happening very slowly. Yeah. And I think one of the troubles, one of the troubles with this is also um, finding the right way to like when you talk about policing boundaries and yeah. having a sense of like, let's say, uh, initiation or um, exclusion from certain groups. Um, these are things that are fundamental to maintaining like uh, highly affiliated groups in the real world. Yeah. but seem to be anathema to a lot of the ideologies that are perpetrating online right now. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to think of themselves as exclusive or if they do, it's only in some trivial sense on the basis of like, you know, willingness to pay or something like that. Yeah. Um, whereas probably what we need is, is some sort of way to both like inculcate more of these kinds of dynamics uh, as well as like use the core in a way to kind of uh, aggregate them. Like I was yeah. talking to a friend the other day and he was saying that the problem with decentralization is that in some ways you need more centralization because you need some sort of mass aggregator yep. of all the decentralized groups that you could be joining. Like you don't know what they are. How do you find them? Yep. Right now you just have to kind of know the right people they send you the right invite code, you know, they tell you about something. Um, but maybe there could be, you know, alternative protocols or something like that, um, where, you know, you, you could see a list of things that you could join, you could apply to join them, only certain conditions, you know, would have to be met for you to get uh, invited, something like that, I, I could imagine. Yeah. Um, uh, some sort of central marketplace for uh, let's say niche social media or something. I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah, this trying is, to change this... the the topography of our internet landscape is sort of yeah what we're getting at. Yeah, this is this is kind of how I've thought about you know something like uh, and I'm I'm not going to pretend I'm an internet guy, but you know some something more sustainable for Facebook would be like if there were like multiple Facebooks when you got on Facebook and and communities were opt in, you know. This is kind of what I was getting at in the Section 230 thing. I'm I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but we've clearly been deceived over what Section 230 is supposed to be. There's this idea that Facebook is not a publisher, but it's a distributor. But this is like saying when you go into Barnes and Noble, you know, it says, all right, there you go. 28 year old male, brown hair, white guy dresses conservative. All right. You, you can only read the philosophy section. Like, well, well, how do I see the other books? And it's like, well, as you start reading more philosophy books, we'll start recommending you. And, you know, that that clearly seems like a curation role that they're taking on in the same sense that a publisher is, except for they're literally not publishing it. Um, and so I, I almost have this vision where Facebook is an opt-in, opt-out system. You can either opt in to the great centralizer that it possesses. Um, or you can opt out of that and opt into more bespoke networks. You know, the bad thing is, is that uh, maybe you won't see family posts as much, but then maybe you make a family network, right? Um, but in some sense, I feel like we're looking at this, it, it would be computationally expensive, but I, I almost see money on the table in terms of advertising revenue. Once the system is opt-in, you know, you're selling people stuff that they want to buy. I mean, this idea that, you know, I, I join, say, like a flint napping group and all I see is like, uh, you know, advertisements for rocks. I mean, I, I would be in my heart's content. 
Um, but something like that currently doesn't exist. Um, so I think, I think, you know, we think about this in that it's not economic, but it might be that we're stuck at a local optima because, you know, it's expensive to maintain. Uh, the ecologist Martin Sheffer talks about this idea of efficiency traps, which is that once you start exploiting, you actually make the valleys deeper around you. We might be at that right now. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. So much to think about there. Um, I guess the YouTube algorithm, the YouTube recommendation algorithm is somewhat similar. Yeah. But the problem there is that, again, the boundary conditions are entirely amorphous, right? Yep. Yep. You could go from watching, I don't know, um, you could go from watching like a, a cooking video on like steak tube yeah. to watching some political commentary a few minutes later, depending on what you're following. I mean, probably that won't show up in your recommendation feed, but um, it's you're not really opting in. It's sort of yep. like a very passive, uh, non-intentional way of getting... You, you kind of get floated along through the YouTube river, right? Yeah. And uh, and then one day you're watching this interview. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Cody, for uh, coming on the show. It was great to uh, connect with you once again and talk about your work. Um, before we go, where can people find you? Where can people follow you to uh, keep up to date with what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So uh, you can follow my website at culturologies.co. Um, on there, there's a link to my Substack. There's a link to my Twitter. My Twitter handle is LTF underscore zero one. Uh, that's historically because I used to write under a pseudonym. Maybe I'll change it to culturologies or something soon. Um, but yeah, you can find all my stuff on there and, um, you know, see what all I'm working on. So. Great. Awesome. Thank you guys. And, um, see you next time, Cody. See ya.